For some weeks now, we've been speaking about the crucial difference between the one who has learned Christ, the Christian, and those who are of the world. The difference between the believer and the non-believer, the new man and the old man. This morning, I want to draw your attention back to Ephesians chapter 4 as we continue in this great epistle to the saints. Ephesians chapter 4. As he often does, Paul begins his letter to the Ephesians by giving profound theological truths. And then, as is Paul's custom, he follows it up with how we are to live in light of those truths. And so he provides doctrine and then application. Doctrine and then application. For instance, the first chapters of Ephesians have the doctrine of salvation and of sin and even of the church. In the first three chapters, the apostle explains really some of the most profound truths that are fundamental to the Christian faith. And after the apostle has taught us theology, he moves to how we must then live our lives in light of that theology. What are the implications of these grand doctrines and how we are to apply them to our day-to-day lives? We've been told of the magnificent doctrine of salvation and we've come to understand something of the order of salvation and the tremendous cost of our salvation. We've been told of the dire consequence of sin and the penalty that it justly deserves and we've got really a grand theology of the body of Christ. And then we come to chapter 4 in Ephesians, and the apostle here begins to switch gears a little. He gives us a little more theology at the beginning, but here he begins to get to the very practical aspects of the doctrines he's been teaching. He's told us of this great salvation that we have. He's told us that we are members of one another as the body of Christ, that there's only one body, only one Lord, only one faith, And only one baptism. And then we get to verse 17 of chapter 4. And the apostle says, therefore. He means to bring attention to everything he's been teaching us from chapter 1. In other words, the apostle here says, in light of everything that I've taught you, there must be a result. There must be some effect on your life. What is that effect? He says that you no longer walk just as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their mind, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. And so the result of our salvation is to be that we no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. We understand that the word Gentile there is just very simply a term referring to those who are unbelievers. And so the Apostle Paul continues now with that train of thought. And really, he's giving us the theology of the converted life. He's telling us to put off the old man and to put on the new man. Until he gets to our verse for this morning... And then he begins with some very specifics. You see, Paul is never content to just leave us with doctrine only, nor should we ever be content to leave anyone with just doctrine. He always gives application with his doctrine. 
practical teaching that is in light of the doctrine he gives. Now remember, we've just been told in verse 24 of chapter 4 that we're to put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, having been created in righteousness and the holiness of the truth. And now we come to our verse for this morning, verse 25. Let me read that for us. I'm going to read from 25 to 27 so you get kind of the whole context here. It says this, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Since you have put off the old self and put on the new self, this is what Paul means by therefore. Since this has happened, lay aside falsehood. Speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. As many commentators have observed, isn't it very interesting that the first thing the apostle mentions here in this practical application is that we put away lying? I don't know if you've ever considered that, but of all the sins the apostle could have started with, why did he start with lying? Why is lying so crucial that the Apostle Paul names it first? It's a good question. I mean, we could go to any nation on earth, any tribe, any family or individual, anywhere in the world, and with unanimous agreement be told that they all hate it when someone lies to them, right? Even closer to home, we understand this. Everyone in this room this morning has probably been lied to. And I would wager that you did not appreciate that, right? We hate that. Lying causes devastation, it brings harm, and it always births other evil. You've seen this. Someone tells a lie, and guess what they have to do next? They have to tell a lie to cover their lie, and then they have to tell another lie to cover that lie. And it just goes on and on and on, and pretty soon what you have is a web of lies that would make even the best of spiders jealous. And the results are often as deadly as a spider's web, too. I think we understand this now perhaps more than any other period in our history. It's been rightly observed that we are probably now the most lying of all civilizations. I don't mean in terms of the number of lies necessarily, although that may be true, but rather in terms of exposure to lies. I mean, before today's modern technology, you had to physically be in front of a person, right, to hear a lie. With the advent of printing up to modern-day social media, it's now become impossible, really, to escape lies. You turn on the radio, lies. You turn on social media, lies. You turn on the news, lies. You open the newspaper, lies. And sometimes it feels as though it's almost impossible to know what is true. If it weren't for believers who have a book of truth, I think we would drown in a sea of lies in our current society. Think about the last several years. We've seen more lies than you can count bees in the summertime. Not only are the lies numerous, but they're also utterly absurd. Society has become so depraved that lies aren't even believable anymore, and yet, the deception is so deeply entrenched in our culture 
that the most ridiculous lie is believed by the masses. You know, if you were to go back a hundred years ago and simply communicate some of the things that people believe today, let me tell you what would happen. You would have been invited to a free room and board in a luxurious hotel where you couldn't disturb anyone and where no one could disturb you, otherwise known as an asylum. But today, those things are celebrated. We're told that men can be women and women men. We're told that it's desirable and even suitable to mutilate children, that it's safe to have perverted men who dress up like dogs run our nuclear energy programs, and that men should be able to play women's sports. And the lies just continue and go on and on and on and on. John MacArthur, commenting on believing that a man can become a woman, says this, and I think he's absolutely right. He says, and I quote, you're on the level of someone who thinks he's a potato chip if you believe that. I think that's about right. But that is the result of years and years of lying and believing lies until God eventually turns a nation over to their lying depravity. We've seen what lies can do. I think anyone can argue that. They've caused riots. They've caused innocent people to be murdered. Look at the many families that were separated for over a year because of the government's lies. Look how many elderly mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters died alone in nursing homes separated from their families because of lies. Think about the millions of messed up youth right now who are being confused and manipulated and mutilated all because of lies. Perhaps even more frightening than all of that is what's happened in many churches. Look how many churches have adopted the lies of the world. So many have rejected the authority of Scripture because the world says there's no absolute truth, and they've bought that lie. Many have rejected the inerrancy of Scripture because the world says it was written by men. It can't be without error, and they've bought that lie. Many have abandoned the sufficiency of Scripture because an unbelieving world is convinced or has convinced many in the church that the world knows better than God. And many churches have bought that lie. Look at how many pastors are afraid to speak the truth because of the world's lies. They're scared people won't come to their church. They're afraid that the church will be small and it won't grow. It messes with their salary. always tiptoeing around the difficult passages not to offend anyone in their church who hates the truth. But then if that's true in a church, God is not ruling that church. Lies are, and we see that all over today. I read a statistic just last night uh, done by the Barna Study Group that claimed that one-third of pastors in the US, one third reject the inerrancy of scripture. One third. So they believe that lie. But it isn't only lies from the secular world that's crept into the church, but lies concerning doctrine and worship and even about the church itself. I read a rather heartbreaking tweet from someone a few days ago 
In fact, as I was reading it, I was thinking this is something that I would expect to hear in Africa. And yet this was in the U.S. The person whose tweet it belonged to, they were talking about how their mother believed the lies of charismatic doctrine. And because she believed those lies, she refused to get cancer treatment because she thought God was going to heal her. She could have been saved and she died because she refused treatment. Lies kill people. At the very least, they always bring destruction of some sort. If they don't end in physical death, they kill relationships, trust, and beauty. They kill everything that's good and holy and lovely. And so depravity and lies are a unit. They belong together and they're inseparable. So the Apostle Paul tells us that the old self is put away. And because the old self is put away, lies must now also be put away. And falsehoods. The old man, we're told, is dead in trespasses and sins. The old man, which is a natural liar. But the new man, the new self, is created in the likeness of God and righteousness and holiness and in what? Truth. Truth. So, why does the Apostle Paul choose to speak of lying first, of all the sins he could have picked? And by the way, we know that it was no accident because the Bible is the very word of God, right? Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it was no mistake that lying is first. I think that there are a lot of reasons for this, but let me just give you two this morning. The first is this, that lying is the characterization of all evil. Lying is the characterization of all evil. Just think about it. Sin first entered into man through what? A lie. In fact, if you have your Bibles, why don't you just turn with me to Genesis chapter 3 real quick. Genesis chapter 3. So man is walking with God in the garden, enjoying life, enjoying rich Fellowship with God like man has never had before and has never had since. And then this happens. I'll read from verse 1 here. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast in the field in which the Lord God had made. And he said to woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. There it is right there. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God tricked you, Eve. God doesn't want you to eat the fruit because he knows you'll be like him. He's really just trying to keep you down. It's not for your best interest that you don't eat that fruit. And with that lie, she ate, being deceived, along with Adam. Folks, let's never be tempted to believe that a lie is a small thing. It embodies all that is evil. It characterizes the representative of evil himself. Listen to the words of Jesus describing Satan. He's speaking to the Pharisees in John 8, 44. Listen to what he says. Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. 
He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The person who's given to lies is as close to the devil as anyone could be because he's exhibiting the very nature of Satan himself. All throughout scripture, we are warned of lies and their consequences. King David in Psalm 119.63 says, I hate and despise falsehood, but I love your law. So you see the righteous love the truth and hate falsehood. The old man was a liar. And yet we're told that that old man, if you're a believer here today, was crucified with Christ and you are a new man made in righteousness and truth. It's interesting, Proverbs 12.22, you can go ahead and turn to Proverbs 6. Proverbs 12.22 says, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are his delight. Now, Proverbs 6 is very interesting. It uses a very strong language. We find this abomination language Again, here, and a list of things God hates. Listen to this list. There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, that's pride. A lying tongue. And hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that run rapidly to evil. A false witness who utters lies. And one who spreads strife. Among brothers, that's interesting. Pride is the first one listed, and then immediately following that, a lying tongue. And of course, it goes on to mention lying again. Now, I say it's interesting because the reality is that pride is always rooted in deception, which is lies. We're proud because we lie to ourselves about how good we are, or how important we are, or how much we deserve to be praised. And so even at the top of this list where we see pride, it's inseparable from lies. Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy writes in verses 12 to 13, it says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 13 is where I want you to pay attention to. But evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You see, it characterizes those who are evil. Evil men will proceed from bad to worse. And what characterizes those evil men? They will be deceived and deceiving. Proverbs 26 also describes the evil man. It says, he who hates disguises it with his lips, but he lays up deceit with his heart. When he speaks graciously, do not believe in him, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Not only does lying characterize evil, it's point one, but secondly, lying is the natural state of the unregenerate man. Lying is the natural state of the unregenerate man, and this is why Paul addresses this issue. From the earliest stages of life, we instinctively know how to lie, because that is the sinful nature in which we were born. 
right? If you'll recall Ephesians chapter 2, it describes the unregenerate heart, right? We're told that as unbelievers, we walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in what? The sons of disobedience. Well, the prince of the power of the air is who? We're talking about Satan. He's the father of lies. Satan's a liar by nature. So it makes sense that all of those who are still following in his ways exhibit his character. Listen to Jesus describing just the heart of man from Mark chapter 7, 14 to 23. After he, being Jesus, called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile him. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable, and he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into a man from outside of him cannot defile him? But it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. So you can enjoy your bacon. Verse 20. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man is that which defiles the man. From within, out of the heart of men, perceive, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness, all these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. See, deceit and lies are in the heart of man from birth. From birth. I mean, just think about this. You know what you never have to teach a child to do? Lie. You ever thought about that? I mean, a mother looks at that sweet, innocent little child who could never do anything wrong until nap time. It's time for a nap, and what happens? That child conjures up a pitch that you didn't even know was possible, screaming, no nap. And whatever they have in their hand at that moment, they slam it down on the ground in a rampage, and then when you say, now why did you throw that down, that child just looks at you with those big, innocent eyes and says, I didn't do that. Right? You catch your kid in the cookie jar. You know you're not allowed in there. Oh, I didn't get a cookie. We're liars even from birth. I mean, you did it too. Right? You don't have to teach children how to be selfish or how to steal or how to lie. You can set two toddlers together, each with their own toys, and you know what? One is going to look at that other's toy, and in their little toddler mind, they're going to say, you know what? I think I should have that. And what does he do? He takes it. He has his own toy. He takes it. He'll steal that toy quicker than a bear finds honey. And then what happens when you try to give it back? Well, in that moment, he surely recognizes he's done wrong, right, and submits to mom or dad. No, that's not what happens. He bursts into a raging fit because you interrupted his theft, his selfish will. 
You took that toy that he wanted that didn't belong to him and he doesn't like it. And to be honest, you're lucky he's as small as he is because if he was bigger, he would kill you. You know it's true. Suddenly you discover that that little innocent angel is actually a viper in a diaper, as someone else has rightly said. It's true. Because we're all born natural liars. But why is it this way? Why are we born with a wicked, sinful, lying heart? Well, because Scripture tells us that we're children of wrath before Christ saves us. And the nature of Satan is our nature before Christ saves us. And so it makes sense that just after the Apostle Paul has said, put off the new self and put on, put off the old self and put on the new self, that he tells us then to put away falsehood, put away lying, put away this thing that characterizes evil, Satan himself. The apostle is generally never content to touch on a subject from just one angle. If you're familiar with the Apostle Paul's writings, he often teaches from all sides of a thing, from both the negative aspects, which he says here by laying aside falsehood, and then he comes to the positive side where he says, speak truth, each one of you, to his neighbor. This is still the idea here of putting off and taking on, right? Be done with those things that characterize the old self, that characterize the world. You're no longer of the world if you're a believer. And then he comes to the positive side. Speak truth. Put on those things which characterize the new man, which characterize the person and work of Christ. And so whereas lying is the character of Satan, and thus the old self, truth is the character of God, and therefore is to be the character of the new man. And so Paul alludes to the very reason he deals with this subject in verse 24. I don't know if you caught it, but he says that the new self is created in the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness and in the truth. God is a God of truth. Anything God does, he does in truth. And anything he creates should reflect his own nature. Truth is a fundamental character of the nature of God. You can't separate those two things. In fact, God himself defines what is true. Before anything existed, God existed, and so he's the source of all truth. This is the very reason there's such an attack on the truth in our world today. It's very simply because men hate God. And to attack the truth is to attack that which characterizes God. We read that Satan's the father of lies, and we understand that Satan is the antithesis character of God, right? He's the opposite, and so we can rightly say that God is the father of truth. In Hebrews 6.18, we are told, for instance, that it is impossible for God to lie. You ever thought about that? Is it impossible for God to do something? Yes. It's impossible for God to do anything outside of his character. God cannot lie. You know, what else is interesting is all three persons of the Trinity are associated with the truth. Did you know that? Deuteronomy 32.4 says of God, The rock 
His word is perfect for all his ways are judgment, a God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. It's God the Father. Listen to how John describes Christ in John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. In fact, Jesus says of himself, and you're familiar with this passage in John 14.6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And then Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what he says about the Holy Spirit in John 16, 8 through 15. And he, this is Jesus speaking of the Holy Spirit, when he comes will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me and he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Spirit of truth. He'll guide you into all truth. God is a God of truth. Christ is the truth. And so God the Father is a God of truth. Jesus is the truth, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. Therefore, every member of the blessed Godhead declared to be truth because God is a God of truth. Not only is God a God of truth, but the Christian faith is a faith founded on truth. It's by grace through faith in Jesus Christ that we are saved. And we read earlier where Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. Jesus in his priestly prayer, and we need to understand when Jesus prays to the Father, we, we know that that prayer is going to get answered, right? We can be assured that prayer is going to get answered. What does he pray in John 17, 17? He prays concerning the disciples. He says, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Psalm 145, 18 says, The Lord is near to all those who call upon him, to all those who call upon him in truth. We read the passage earlier where Jesus spoke of how the devil was the father of lies, but let me just back up a few verses in John 8, 31 to 43. Listen to what he says here. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, If you continued in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him and said, We are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The Son does remain forever. So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you have heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to him, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me 
a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, you were not born of we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to him, if God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not come of my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. He said the Christian faith is a faith of truth. And it's the truth that sets us free. The gospel message is the message of truth that has the power unto salvation. The truth is that we were all sinners and that we've sinned against a holy God. And because of our sin, we deserve the just penalty of eternal hell. But God, being rich in mercy, sent his only son, Jesus Christ, so that those who repent of their sin and confess Christ as their Lord and Savior with their lips and believe in their heart shall be saved. That's the truth. That's the gospel truth. The entire Christian faith is a faith built upon the truth. And so God is a God of the truth, and the Christian faith is a faith of truth, and then the Christian Bible is a book of truth. David in 2 Samuel prays out to God in verse 28, and he says, Now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are truth. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. The psalmist in Psalms 119.160 says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. In 2 Corinthians 6.7, Paul speaks of the word of truth and the power of God. In 2 Timothy 2.15, the apostle encourages young Timothy in the ministry saying, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. He's speaking about the scriptures. The Bible is a book of truth. This is, in fact, the Bible, the only source of absolute, incontestable truth on the planet. Written by the holy inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's stood the test of thousands of years of prophecy after prophecy fulfilled, having eyewitnesses of other eyewitnesses testifying all to this truth. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The Bible is the Word of God, and it's authoritative, inerrant, sufficient, and it's altogether true. So God is the God of truth. The Christian faith is a faith of truth. The Bible is a book of truth. And because all that is true, the new self created in the righteousness of God is to be a man of the truth. And so Paul says, lay aside falsehood and speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. The old man who is a man of lies and deceit and sinful lust has been crucified with Christ. That doesn't characterize you if you're a believer this morning. That man is dead. The new man characterizes you. And that new man is to reflect the character and nature of Christ. That of truth, 
holiness and righteousness. By the way, if you didn't catch it, Paul in our passage is quoting actually from the Old Testament. That phrase, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor is probably capitalized in your Bible. Generally, when it's capitalized that way, it's because he's quoting something from another text, an Old Testament text. And it's very interesting because that phrase comes from Zechariah chapter 8. It won't make you turn there. But God is speaking to his people of the coming peace and the prosperity of Zion. Listen to what he says. I'll read just a few verses from verse 1. This is where Paul's quoting from Zechariah. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. Yes, with great wrath I am jealous for her. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of of truth and the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain thus says the Lord of hosts old men and old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem each man with his staff in his hand because of age and the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in the streets and the Lord of thus says the Lord of hosts if it is too difficult in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days it would also be will it also be too difficult in my sight declares the Lord Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am going to save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west, and I will bring them back, and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong. You are listening in these days to these words from the mouth of the prophets, those who spoke in the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid to the end that the temple might be built. For before those days was no wage for any man or any wage for animal. And for him who went out or came in, there was no peace because of his enemies. And I set all men one against another. But now I will not treat the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there will be peace for the seed. The vine will yield its fruit and the land will yield its produce and the heavens will give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to inherit all these things. It will come about just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel. So I will save you that you may become a blessing. Do not fear, let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, just as I purpose to do harm to you when your fathers provoke me to wrath, wrath, says the Lord of hosts, I have not relented. So I have again purposed in these days to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear. So he's God's promising a new day coming. And here it is, after he's guaranteed them all of this to come, here comes the first command. These are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. It's God's first command after speaking of the coming peace is that they speak truth to one another. And that's where Paul's getting this from. And I want to make sure we understand our passage is primarily speaking about how we communicate to fellow brothers and sisters, right? You're a part of one another. He's speaking to the Ephesians about how they relate not to the world, but to each other. Now, we understand that that would also, by extension, apply to those around us. But especially 
especially within the church. We are to be people of truth. And so we speak truth and love to one another. We understand this. No family can sustain itself on lies and deceit. Likewise, no church or Christian community can thrive where webs of lies are weaved. Why is the truth so important? Firstly, because it reflects the character and nature of God. Secondly, because the Christian faith is a faith of truth. Thirdly, because the Bible is a book of truth. Fourthly, because the new self, the new creation in Christ is made in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And lastly, the truth is essential here because our battle is a battle for the truth. Paul, writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.15, says, If I delay... You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of what? The truth. Jude 1.3 tells us that the battle is for the truth. Jude, by the way, a half-brother of Jesus, he's writing... The general epistle, and he says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. You understand what he's saying there? Contend for the truth, the faith, not that's being manipulated by false teachers and false preachers and false prophets. But contend for the faith that was handed down by the saints, the true faith. 2 Timothy 2.16-18 through 18 says, But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened, and they are upsetting the faith of some Matthew, we're warned to beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but are inwardly ravenous wolves. There's a war for the truth in the Galatian church. If you read the beginning of Galatians, Paul's opening remarks in verses 6 through 9, he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. You see, the truth is being attacked. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. You see, they were under attack. The truth was under attack. Every... Person. The reality is every person on this planet is in, in an epic battle over the truth. Those still without Christ are liars, just like their father, the devil. And those who are born again, children of God, are meant to be bearers of the truth. If you call Christ your Lord and Savior, the old self has been crucified. The old self has been crucified. Therefore, you are to put on the new self and put away falsehood and lying and speak the truth to one another because you are sons and daughters of the God of truth. 
in order to reflect the character of Christ, who is the way and the truth and the life. Speaking of the battle for the truth, in Ephesians chapter 5, we're not going to get there for some time, but just to give you a little preview, this reality is made evident here. Paul says in verse 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, because of this, take up the full armor of God. You see, you only need armor if you're in a battle. Take up the full armor of God. Why, Paul? Why do we need this armor? So that you will be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. So the apostle gives us doctrine, and he gives us practice. The old man has been crucified with Christ. You are a new creature if you're a Christian. And so the old man, the lying man, the deceitful man, the lustful man was crucified in Christ. And because that's true, lay aside falsehood and speak truth to one another. Let's pray.